Hey, I want to teach you this phrase tonight. The oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. The, the oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. Now you might say, well, Fred, I feel like I'm somebody who's for others. Maybe we could argue that there's some people in this room that are nicer than others. Maybe in your family, some people are nicer than others. But, but let's say that there was some type of contest, and we were able to, from people in line and people in the room, we were able to pull up the five nicest people in City Life Church. Now, we know Penny Jordan's going to be one of them, and then the other four is up for grabs. But all five of them, and Penny, Penny were here, she would tell you, if she were up here, she would say, that being for others isn't always the natural inclination of her heart either, because we all suffer from this thing called the human condition. And, and, and this problem with the human condition is that we are usually for ourselves before we are for others. And, and even if we get to a place where we are for others, more often than not, we had to wrestle through the temptation of being for ourselves to get to that place of being for others. Can I just tell you that God has never had that temptation within himself? There has never been a moment in all of time where God had to wrestle within himself with selfishness. There's never been a moment, not ever, not one time, where there was this feeling or this sensation or this prompting or this inclination to be for himself instead of being for others. Let's read this verse together. It's Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? That's you and me. Right? The capacity that we have within ourselves for wrongness has no limit. The capacity that God has within himself for goodness is beyond all limits. This phrase, this idea of the oneness of God is important because it is central to Christianity. In this series, we're going to be working through seven foundational beliefs, declarative statements that we have as Christians, I'm going to explain the word doxa next week. There wasn't time for it, but that simply means it's translated in a few different ways in the Bible, but one of them is a belief or a point of view or some way that you posture yourself in something that you understand to be true. And, and, and when I talk about the oneness of God, I like this phrase better than what's typically used in Christian circles, which is Trinity or the triune nature of God, because I, I feel like there's a a, a theological barrier there. People begin to hear theological terms and it, and it creates pause. So how, how about we restate these things in a way that makes maybe sense, better sense to people. I like the idea of the oneness of God because that phrase actually appears in the Bible. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means it's a word that we've reached for to try to explain something that's hard to understand. And so we use it to articulate something that we observe. But this idea of God is one, that phrase is repeated in the Bible over and over and over again. So maybe God used that phrase for a reason. Maybe he understood there was something about that phrase that was going to Help us understand who he is. 
and who he is to us. Now, you can study this idea of the oneness of God for the rest of your life, but there's always going to be a mystery to it. And can I just tell you, I'm glad for that. Sometimes when people begin to explore Christianity and they begin to see so many things that there's a mystery to them, that doesn't detract from my faith. For me, it adds to it. I don't want God to be easy to understand. Right? If, if he's divine, can I, can, can I just tell you, I want him to be beyond my reach intellectually. Because if I can figure it out, we're all in trouble. There, there's a mystery to who God is. We're never going to understand it all. But we can at least accept and embrace the things that he has chosen to tell us about himself. And here's a list that I believe that the Bible gives to us from Genesis to Revelation as we look at the full counsel of Scripture when we talk about the oneness of God. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. God reveals himself to the world in these three distinct ways. How can they be independent and individual, but at the same time one? It's a mystery. How how can they be one and the same, but yet separate? I don't know. I I don't even know if we're going to be able to understand it when we get to heaven. At some point in our humanity, even in a heavenly state, will we really be able to understand fully Everything there is to know about God, I hope not. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are one in fellowship, they are one in purpose, and they are one in substance. One in fellowship, one in purpose, and one in substance, and they are all three divine. One of the cornerstones of Christianity is that divinity is ascribed to each of them. That divinity is ascribed to the Father, that divinity is ascribed to the Son, and divinity is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Now, we like to do a little give, a few giveaways here and now at our church, just, just saying. Let me reach in my pocket, see which one comes out. Oh, it's the Amazon card. Is, is, there, is there anybody in here bold enough to tell me what the three O words, it's three words that begin with O, that, that really define what divinity is. Oh, I see a hand pop up. Master of, you've just gotten your Master's of Divinity, so if you don't get this, this, okay, yes, yes. All right, what, what are the three O words for divinity? Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Hey, come on, how about a little applause? Don't be jealous that you didn't know that. All right. Omnipotent means all-powerful, Omniscient means all-wise and all-knowing, and then omnipresent means to be able to be everywhere at once. You can't look at this Bible from start to finish and not see that it speaks of both the Father and the Son and the Spirit of being all three of those things. It's an important part of Christianity. You, If you... if. If you negotiate any part of that, then I would argue respectfully that you are negotiating some of the foundational teachings of Christianity. So let me, let me ask you this question. Can you find me one place in Scripture where it seems that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are jealous of one another? Can, can you find me one place in Scripture where it seems as though they are competing with one another? 
Can you find me one place in Scripture where it seems as though they are postured in a place of confrontation against one another? Can you find me one place in Scripture where it seems as though they are threatened by one another? I don't think we can. Because the nature of God is to be for others. And the way that we see it in the first place is that they are for one another. Always, at every turn. Look at this verse in Matthew 3, 17. As we look at the Father and how he is for the Son. This powerful picture of Jesus at his baptism is as he wades out into the waters of, of the Jordan River and this prophet John the Baptist, if you're new to the Bible, there was prophetic silence in Israel for 400 years and John the Baptist is the first prophet in four centuries and it just also happens to be Jesus' cousin. And as Jesus comes out into the water to be baptized, there is this voice that proclaims from the heavens, this is my son that I love with whom I am well pleased. God shouts from the heavens. He's, he's excited. He's proud. It's himself, but yet it's his son, right? It's the mystery. But they're all there. It says the spirit comes down like a dove. In this moment, all three of them shared in this moment. But the ones who were not at the center of the moment were not threatened by the one who was. If, if, if they had cameras back then, and someone was taking a picture, or Jesus is taking a selfie with him and his cousin, right? God's not in the background photobombing, saying, hey, this moment is really about me. We, we, we see this picture of them interacting in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are always for one another. All the things that God could have said in that moment when Jesus was baptized. He could have said, hey, this whole thing of being fully God and fully man, I came up with that. He, he could have said, hey, the virgin birth, that would not have been possible without my power. I'd like some credit over here. This has never been done before, and it'll never be done again. The Holy Spirit could have said, I inspired the prophets to predict it. Not, neither of them are trying to get credit that they certainly deserve because that moment was about the Son. He looks at his son in the natural inclination of his heart. You understand what I'm saying? There wasn't a moment of temptation that God had to wrestle with within himself to make that moment about himself. There, there was no moment at Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit was wrestling and struggling. The angels weren't having to restrain him and muzzle him so that he would point to himself. No, no, this moment was about Jesus, and they were excited for the Son, to take a stand in history, to demonstrate to humanity how salvation was going to come to the world. How about the Son? In John 5, 19, we have this incredible statement where Jesus says that he doesn't do anything without the Father's permission. He doesn't say anything that the Father doesn't want him to say. He doesn't do anything that the Father doesn't want him to do. You, you have this, this, this description that Jesus gives that he is, even though he is equal with God, he's fully submitted to the Father. 
I don't know about you, but I love shows and movies about medieval history, mostly for the battle scenes, admittedly. Anybody excited about Vikings Valhalla coming out new season? Just me? Anybody else? It's not for kids. It's adults only and lots of fast forwarding, but the battle scenes with battle axes and shields, I'm just saying I'm here for it. I'm here for it. But in that time of history, like the movie Gladiator and, and movies like that, there's, there's always a son that's overthrowing the father or a sibling that's overthrowing another sibling. There's always, there's treachery, right? There's, there's betrayal. There's people trying to win others over to their side so they can come to power and gain the glory that somebody else that's related to them has. You, you don't ever see any of that in Scripture between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They have a kingdom, and that kingdom encompasses everything and all the glory that's available, but you never see them posturing against each other for it. You don't see Jesus coming onto the scene saying, okay, Father, you've had your turn, now it's mine. There's no sense of Jesus wanting to take the throne, and isn't it great that the pictures in Scripture that we're given where the Father talks about Jesus being seated on a throne. It's not taken. It's not fought for. Why is this? Because the nature of God is to be for others. And we see it first by them being for one another. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? We see it with the Father. We see it with the Son. Do we see it with the Spirit? Yes, we do. John 16, 13 through 14 it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is Jesus speaking of the Spirit. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. Listen to what it says. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Wow. wow. Have you ever noticed, I've shared this before, and we, we talked about this a couple of years ago when we were teaching on the oneness of God, that when you hit your thumb with a hammer, no one ever says, Holy Spirit. Right? Who says that? Do you, do you think that makes him feel left out? Right? Well, how is it that God, Jesus, right, if you live in the world that's out there, hopefully not in your home, but as you leave your home and go to other places, hopefully your children didn't learn those things from you, right? Moments of expression that, that maybe fall into the category of cursing, the Holy Spirit's not included in those. Have you ever thought maybe the Holy Spirit's like, I feel a little left out here? Maybe you're going to start a new trend. Have you ever noticed that the Holy Spirit doesn't have an audible voice in Scripture? There's leadings of the Spirit. There's the prompting of the Spirit. God has an audible voice in Scripture at times. Jesus certainly has an audible voice, both what I would argue sometimes in the Old Testament, another sermon for another time, but it's certainly the 33 years that he lived here. But the Holy Spirit never has a voice. And then when he leads and he prompts, guess what he's leading and prompting? He's leading and prompting based on what he gets from Jesus and what he sees in the heart of the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We never see the Holy Spirit stand up and say, the Father had his turn to be here. The Son had his turn to be here. Now it's my turn to be here, and I will now be the center of attention. Not ever once. Why? 
Because the nature of God is to be for others. And we see it first and foremost and how they are for one another. The oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others, for others. Now you might say, well, Fred, what does that have to do with me besides something that I'm supposed to believe? And in each week in this series, we're going to go beyond doctrine because we don't want to be a church that just inspires you to a place of religious intellectualism. We want to ask the question, what is this belief supposed to do in me, which is where this idea of never again being out of place comes from. Somebody say out of place. What, what are some things that are hard to find in your home because they're not in the place where they're supposed to be? Me, meaning that when you're in your home, you have said, has anybody seen my? Oh, that's great. All right, one at a time. What is it? Scissors? All right, I like it. Almost anything. Anybody else? Glasses, keys. See? It's, it's real, isn't it? The struggle is real. Raise your hand, I'll point to you, and you give it to me. Somebody over here say something? Phone charger. Was there somebody in the middle here? No? Always, always the wallet. Yours or hers? His. Katrina's like, did you see Katrina point? The finger came out. Somebody, oh, somebody over here was saying something. Your child, yes. Has anybody seen my children? You said remote? Yes, remote control. Stan. Your cane. Yes, yes. There are, there, are, there are things that we have that are supposed to have a place, and when they are out of place, we cannot find them. I was telling my family just... The other day, I could I was on a Zoom call. I was so distracted about a week ago because I could not find my glasses anywhere. Guess where they were? Yes, they were on my head. Sure. Mm -hmm. Whole half an hour. Yep. 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 So it's waiting for you at 55, just saying. It's coming for you. That you have to actually wear them, and then you can't find them because they're on your head. Yeah. The struggle is real. There are things that are out of place in your home. Which I think also reminds us that there's times in our own lives where we feel out of place. Right? That, that, that feeling that we have that we can't find something that's not in its right place sometimes reverses and we find ourselves in circumstances and situations where there is this, this gnawing feeling in our hearts that we are out of place that we are not where we are supposed to be. I know for me, one of the most driving feelings, most poignant feelings of, of being out of place, one of the, the strongest feelings of being out of place is when I am separated from my family for an extended period of time. Military families, right, you guys are heroes, and you ladies, heroes. You should be applauding there, heroes, right? I'm away from my family for five days, and I, right, I can't, it's, be, it's beyond what I can bear, beyond what I can bear. 
I, I sh- I've shared this story before years ago when I was on a mission trip in, in Haiti and we were building a bridge there. We were in the mountains of Haiti, out in the wilderness, just in the jungle and, and right on the border of the Dominican Republic, a remote area. And, and, and the only way that I could call home, I kid you not, the only place there is if I stood on the, see this heart-shaped rock right there? That was outside of the home. If I stood there with a foot on each side of that heart, I could call Vanessa, and it was as though she was across the street, right? Unbelievable. If I stepped off of it, the phone, the call would drop. Every day I could call from that, that heart-shaped rock. Even though I was still far away, just hearing her voice, right, just settled my heart because I felt out of place, All of you probably have stories, moments where you have felt out of place, situations where you feel out of place, circumstances that cause you to have that gnawing feeling inside of you that you're not in the right place. Let let me suggest this to you. The seven core beliefs of Christianity, our doxa, again, I'm going to explain that word in greater detail next week. The seven core beliefs of Christianity, our doxa, instruct us where to be just as much as they teach us what to know. They, 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 they instruct us where to be just as much as they teach us what to know. As you're going to find in this series that, that I'm going to give you one word for each of these beliefs that is a where word, meaning that it's telling me where I'm supposed to be, not geographically, come on, Right? Not every question that begins with where is about geography, or maybe I would argue it's about the geography of the heart. So sometimes there is a place where we are supposed to be where we are not in here, and that causes us to have this feeling of being out of place. And I would argue tonight that this belief, this core doctrine of God being One, always calls us to a place of trust. Always calls us to a place of trust. You've heard me share before that I made my vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990. And in the months leading up to that and the, the, the year just prior to that, I took my first real job. I graduated from college in 1989, took my first real job in 1990. I went to work for this organization that was an international child sponsorship agency. It was just an entry-level position where I was a customer service representative just taking calls and, and, and signing uh, letters for, for donors. And I remember when I, when I got my first cubicle, I came out of training, and you come into this, into this office, and there's just cubicles everywhere, right, with phones and, and monitors and, and, and headsets. And, and the cubicle was completely bare, right? Whoever had been there before had taken everything of theirs out, pictures, plants, pens, all of it. No office supplies yet. It was completely bare except for this one piece of paper that was laminated with scotch tape. You know how you laminate stuff with scotch tape because you don't have a laminating machine, right? You, you just, you know, all my crafty people in the room. Somebody had taken a piece of paper and, 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 with, and with scotch tape had, had typed out the, the verse Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, 
but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. I was a brand new Christian. You know what it meant for me? Brandon, I'm showing up, and, and it, it, that, that verse was in that keyboard waiting for me. It was one of the very first verses of Scripture that I ever memorized was that verse. And, and I think God knew that I needed to understand something. That this, this, this new commitment, this, this vow of devotion that I had made to Jesus, that, that it needed me to, to posture myself in a place of trust with him. All of the ways that he was going to have to change me. All of the things that I was wrestling with as a young man that I had struggled with, that I was trying to put down, God was saying, this relationship is going to be based on trust. You, he's saying to me, trusting me in all my ways. Trust in the Lord. The more you see the oneness of God, the more you reflect on the oneness of God, right? As you're reading through Scripture, we see it over and over and over. The Holy Spirit then takes it and prompts us. I hope that's happening for you tonight. Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe as you've read the Bible, you've not thought about how prominent the oneness of God is in the Bible. And now as you read it, the Holy Spirit's going to take this sermon. And it's, it's like you're going to, as you're picking, as you picked your Bible reading plan, which I trust you've already done, and you're going to be reading over the next several weeks, you're going to go, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. The more you discover the oneness of God in Scripture, the more you see how his nature is to be for others. And the more convinced you become that he is for others, the more you realize that he's for you. See, this idea of God being for others, at some point you should go, wait, wait, I'm a part of the others. He, he's for others, which means that he is for me, no matter who you are. Whatever but you have that you can raise as a rebuttal for why God should not be for you, it's not enough for him. He blows right past it. Right? You, you might be thinking, I might be the first one in history to give God pause. I, I might be. Fred, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the secrets that I carry. You, you don't know the things from my, my past. Can I just tell you, it's never even been thought for God to not be for you because of the story of your past. The, in, the nature of who he is is to be for others. The nature of who he is is to be for you no matter what. He's for you. He's for you. He can't help it. It's his nature. And the more you realize that he is for you, the more you will be drawn into a place of trust in him. Something happens in your heart when you, when you realize the nature of who he is and you realize that he just turns that right onto you. It's, it's like a spotlight that's getting all of a sudden it shines right on you and you're like, he's for me. He's for me. Something begins to grow in your heart and that thing is called trust. It draws you out of the place where you are and into a place maybe that's brand new for you as the worship team comes.